Kruiso and welcome to another special edition of the Welsh Weekly Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? Very well, thanks. Yeah, um, I absolutely love this episode. Probably my favourite one yet, from, probably bet. from a selfish sort of point of view, but... Uh, I was absolutely in my element. I uh, loved it. I could have spoken all night. As you see, I probably do speak quite a lot in the, <laughs> in the podcast. But, uh, yeah, no, it was great to, um, to to get Dave back on again. We're so lucky to have him, um, you know, being a friend of the pod, as we, as we say. And yeah, third appearance, uh, two two in a week. He was there. Obviously, we, we both uh, admit that we, we didn't go. Different reasons. Yeah, a tiny bit too young, really. Yeah, you were 13. You were too young and I was doing something else. But I um, can't remember what I was actually doing. So it was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, unbelievable response to the episode and, and the request for anecdotes and memories of the night uh, so thank you very very much for for sharing them with us and um, we couldn't fit them all into the recording of the podcast but there's a couple uh, we want to call out in the intro yeah um I, it was just like it was such an exciting time um the millennium and laced with that was also a real sort of anxiety of um the millennium bug and also the anxiety about the world ending which i remember as a 13 year old thinking yeah is this actually gonna happen or what <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, we, we had um, we had a tweet here from um, Gareth Williams saying that he was really worried on the night about the sliding roof breaking due to the many, uh, millennium bug. Yeah, and he obviously the roof fell off on the. Um, well, yeah, we, I think we talked about that briefly in the pod. Yeah, it was in was it in one of the World Cup opening rugby, ceremony yeah, in the rugby. Yeah, so um, yeah, th- I think there was real sort of um, nerves amongst the band as well, like if it was going to all come off. But yeah, then they pulled off with a plum and um, watching the DVD again in the weekish. Whenever I watch a live gig of the Manix, I always just fall in love with the band all over again. Really. Yeah, something else we didn't uh, cover on the recording was um, the fact that Nicky smashed up his bass infamously at the end of the uh, end of the gig and we had a great email with uh, with us with a story about that yeah probably my favorite story we received uh, an email from Gareth Newberry um, what a night um, Griff Reese of the Superior Animals came out on stage mid set and gave me a beard on the front then it was absolute carnage when Nicky smashed his bass guitar up at the end and everyone fought over it I managed to get a chunk of it and got it signed by the lads a few months later it's now in a frame in my toilet along with his fusion badge from his strap I have the newspapers from the next morning with me next to Nicky down the front amazing night oh what a, what a so memento it's, it's got pride, pride of place in uh, this guy's toilet <laughs> thank you Gareth for um, that and uh, yeah another one we wanted to give a shout out um, we talk in the pod about Nicky Wire probably looking at his best really I suppose in, uh, as I like to call it his like, sort of Shirley Manson period when he looked like the singer from Garbage and um, yeah Dave sort of waxes lyrical about uh, Nicky Wire in the episode but yeah, just wanted to give out a shout out to um, a Facebook comment we had from Lindsay Taylor Fullman, who said Nicky Wire wore the pink culture slut top I made for him. Pretty much made my century. Oh, amazing. Quite a claim to fame, isn't it? Uh, yeah. The, the item of clothing Nicky Wire's wearing on the DVD and, and, and at Man Millennium, such an iconic gig. And yeah, he's got her on. Amazing. We've done a couple of special episodes uh, in, in the last few weeks. Um, obviously, the Welsh Music Prize went down with uh, Hugh Stevens. We did the 2019 roundup of Welsh music um, and, and top three albums with uh, Beth Ann Elvin and, and, and Dave Owens. And obviously, this one, reliving 20 years on the, the, the iconic uh, Manic Millennium gig. And we've got loads more planned for 2020. Really, um, really excited by uh, the prospect of things like, you know, Mung, uh, the 20th anniversary of a, a seminal Welsh language album. and, and 
and a few others come to mind. But if there's any any suggestions that you guys want us to cover in a, in a special episode next year, please feel free to uh, get in contact with us on Twitter at Welsh Music Pod, on Facebook and Instagram at Welsh Music Podcast, or even on email them um, Welsh Music Podcast at gmail dot com. Um, and any other guests you want uh, us to to get in contact with, especially if you you have their contact details, um, we want to explore as much as we we can in in the sort of broad spectrum of Welsh music location uh, genre language we're going to partner up with uh, Deeth Music Cymru really excited about that um, big focus on learners this year but if you've got any suggestions for guests or, or topics or themes please get in touch and yeah we really appreciate everyone's support yeah uh, I'd like to reiterate what Jamie said um, just overwhelmed with uh, the support and the sort of enthusiasm we've received from you all uh, so far so uh, yeah um, keep it coming we love it uh, and yeah if you can be so kind to give us uh, maybe a short review on iTunes or give us a rating it'll just boost our prominence and make us a lot more visible on there so that would be brilliant thanks so much yeah happy new year guys uh, blow the with that and uh, we'll see you in 2020 so Dave welcome back hello friend of the pod oh it's lovely being here honestly third appearance now mate so uh, if we were in soccer yeah, you'd have a hat-trick ball Amazing. unfortunately we don't have a ball for you but we've got uh, a few beers yeah, the beers are lovely, actually. Dear rest of the media world, don't think I just do stuff for alcohol. <laughs> Although I do, so that's fine. So we're going to be talking about uh, the uh, Manic Street Preachers uh, seminal gig uh, yes. at the turn of the, the century. Yeah. Manic Millennium, I think they build it as. Manic Millennium, yeah. Um, I think it was a bit manic on the night, yeah. obviously. Um, first thing to say is it's a bit frightening. It's 20 years. Yeah, definitely. Um, Incredible, time gone obviously but i've cast in my mind back to obviously what was a momentous period in welsh cultural history and pleasingly I had a little part to play in the whole manic millennium uh, went to the press conference the year before when it was announced um 5th of october 1998 yeah i was working up in london uh doing lots of different jobs but um there was a website called music 365 and they were looking for somebody with uh a little bit of intimate knowledge of Wales and the band and uh, so I trotted down to Cardiff on the train so it was nice to get back home and it was just a real buzz in the air about the whole thing you know they, they'd obviously kept it secret and then there was these rumours that something big was going to be happening and obviously at that time of course the, the band were huge you know they'd gone through the pain and the trauma of Richie's disappearance and um, reawakened themselves and obviously this is my truth tell me yours was such a huge album for them and they could play the biggest of stages and of course you know that gig I guess was the cultural culmination of a fantastic decade for Welsh culture and Welsh music in particular you know we were, all the bands that were coming out of Wales at the time putting Wales on the map internationally and I guess this was the sort of perfect end to the decade if you like with the you know the associated madness that was surrounding the millennium anyway with paranoia over the millennium bug that you know everything was going to stop working planes were going to fall out of the sky so there was this prevailing sense of not really knowing what was going to happen I guess the millennium stadium had opened in 99 with the rugby world cup this was the first gig that they were going to stage there uh, the biggest indoor gig with the roof shut 57,000 60,000 people under one roof so you know there was a lot riding on it and I think the band were you know they've, they've never been shy at coming forward and have always exuded that sort of brash confidence uh, but I think even for them they were aware that how much was riding on it and what such a big deal this gig was for them you know on, on the night first gig there nobody quite knew what was going to happen and 
everybody had a sense of expectation. I think that's the best thing to say. Everybody was going to go out and enjoy themselves. You know, if the world was going to end and planes were going to drop out of the sky, I think Cardiff was going to be the drunkest city in the world that night. And uh, I think it probably was. Yeah, I, I remember James at the end of one song, it, uh, quite pertinent really, after midnight, just screaming at the end of the song, Millennium Consciousness means fuck all, meaning like, <laughs> it, it was all just like bollocks really, like the Millennium Bug and all the hysteria yes. surrounding it. Yeah. I mean, I actually read something this week that there was so much work done behind the scenes. Somebody was, I, I think it was somebody from IBM that was saying, well, actually, there was so much work being put into it and, you know, Britain's, Europe's, world's greatest minds were on the case that maybe if they hadn't been involved then maybe there would have been a few technical issues to put it mildly but you know to come back to the theme of um, the 90s and 1999 in particular you know Manic Millennium was a culmination of a, an incredible year for Wales you know we had uh, Stereophonics at Morpher Stadium cementing their place in the pantheon of Welsh rock and rollers uh, we had a Welsh Assembly of course following the yes vote in 97 we had um, Wales beating England at Wembley Stadium while the final touches were being put to the millennium Yep. Yeah, played at Wembley, all the Wales home games, and the Five Nations, now the Six Nations. That's right, yeah. Scott Gibbs is uh, but people forget, famous try. try. People forget how high pressure that conversion for Neil Jenkins was. Everyone remembers Scott Gibbs' <laughs> try, but yeah. he still had to put it away, you know. Well, exactly, this is very true. You had um, Reese Funds, yes. yes. not in Hill. Yeah, pants. In his pants, who can ever forget, however hard you try. Catatonia, Margan Park. yeah. You had Wales' first five-star hotel opening. Yeah. Hugh Edwards making his debut on BBC yes, National yeah. News. You know, which is massive in a way, you know, having regional Wait, dialects an on the yeah, national. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it was the culmination of a decade of growth and confidence for Wales, essentially, that we could stand on our own two feet proudly and declare that, you know, we were culturally alive, we were brimming with industry, and... I think gave everybody a boost, you know, that really we've been an adjunct to the rest of the UK for so long and been defined by our past industrial history that it was lovely just to look forward with renewed confidence to the future. And, you know, this gig was, as I say, uh, the rubber seal on that. Yeah, I mean, um, I wanted to chat with you actually about uh, the first episode where you were saying about um, before the Manics, there was, you know, mainly just this sort of alarm in terms of an English language sort of uh, rock sort of stuff. And the difficulty with getting A&R men over the Seven Bridge and that sort of thing. Yeah. And even with the Manic sort of early days, all their headlines were just anti-Welsh, sort of, you know, it just completely wouldn't be tolerated now, uh, you know, sexy motherfuckers and all this sort of thing. How disparate a period was it from the 80s to the sort of end of the 90s for well, Welsh I, music? I, I mean, for somebody who had toiled, really, writing fanzines and, and then a sort of music column and then get a first job in the media, you know, it was really difficult because nobody was interested. I mean, I'd heard stories of bands going to Bristol and posting their demo tapes to London Record Company, so they had a, an English postcode on it, um, you know, an English stamp. And, um, and I could believe it. You know, it was very, very difficult. And, it, you know, it was painful in one respect because there was a brilliantly vibrant scene in the late 80s, um, we talked about it on the pod with uh, 
Befan about the rise of Welsh language music in the 80s, which was particularly politically charged, and how those bands then, like, you know, occurred from Blowers, Utant, um, sort of metamorphosized into Super Furry Animals, Catatonia, for instance, Gorkies. And at the time, it seemed like there was so much going on, but if it wasn't for people like, um, you know, in particular, Rhys Moyn of Anne Revan, who would hawk his tapes around London and go and knock on doors and, you know, go and find John Peel and hand him cassettes. You know, if there were people like that that were really industrious and, uh, you know, torchbearers for the scene, then I think it probably would have remained stagnant for even longer. Th- those bands would have come through. You know, the, the Mannix, I guess, kicked down the doors. You know, they got Hall or Nothing, Martin Hall, Philip Hall, down to down to Wales. I mean, I remember being at Alarm Concert in 1989 at St. David's Hall and um, talking to the Halls who were doing the press for the Alarm and telling me about this band from Blackwood they had that you really need to come and see and talk to. And, you know, the Mannix really did blaze a trail for Wales at that time. So the the work had been done a decade previously, um, but it was nice to finally see and thank God at last. It's, it's staggering to fathom, though, a band like the Mannix, you know, you know, released the Holy Bible, you know, they've sang with, like, Tracy Lords, they've sang about, you know hugely um, sensitive sort of issues uh, and political issues that they'd got to be, you know, the biggest band in the country. You know, if you tolerate this, get into number one. Master against the classes shortly after this, get into number one. It just seems like a different era altogether, doesn't it? I think you had the um, merging of the two tribes, didn't you? You had the... Um Feather Boa, Mascara, Eyeliner, Holy Bible, Leopard Print, wherein fans who love Richie's lyrics, love the Holy Bible. And then obviously when the Manics hit the mainstream and wrote, you know, several of these supersized anthems, obviously that brought them into the mainstream and a different appeal. And, you know, I think nowhere did you see that more perfectly than on Millennium Eve at the Millennium Stadium. You know, on the DVD... Uh, leaving the 20th century you can see the fans down the front are the hardcore I guess you know the feather boa brigade if you like who hang on every word know every lyric and then there was the greater public general public you know who were probably a little bit more beard up than the rest singing the songs back that they knew from this is my truth so and and everything must go and um and I think those two tribes have coexisted ever since to be honest with you yeah definitely I I think it was the sort of overground period during um whenever everything must go came out a design for life was a huge moment but that I think was the moment where you know the Beery lads in their nice you know Fred Perry shirts were suddenly at Mannix gigs shouting we just want to get drunk and taking it all a bit too literally really yeah I think taking it a bit too literally you're right you know it's obviously the intensity and the um eloquence and the intelligence of the lyrics uh, probably lost on a few people maybe without being unfair but nevertheless you know to have a band of that size and that scale as torchbearers and figureheads for a a country um, and of course at that point they wholeheartedly embraced Wales and the flags on the amps um, played to that particular crowd um, not that there was anything superficial about what they were doing of course you know it was all purely um, them you know and the way they felt about Wales and you know fiercely proud of where they came from what, whatever they may have thought about who they were and you know what they were when they came out you know Richie's famous if they uh, had a museum about Blackwood it'd be full of shit and rubble you know <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
again, as I say, it was just a glorious time to be a Welsh music fan. You know, and, and let's not forget on the supporting bill, you know, we had Super Furry Animals who delivered a stunning set that night. You know, you had Feeder who were on the rise. And, you know, there, there was Shaq, who I loved, who was from Liverpool. Brilliant, yeah. Um, hugely unheralded band, uh, fronted by um, the genius that is Mick Head. And obviously, Nicky's brother, um, your, your good friend and ours. Um, <laughs> Another Jones. friend of the pod. Exactly. Uh, opening up proceedings. Again, it was... It was a celebration, you know. I know it was Millennium Eve and um, and it was ambitious and it was grandiose. And in the main, I think they pretty much pulled it off with a plum. Yeah, Dave, like you said, 1999, Wales were at the peak of its powers, um, as were the band. You know, This Is My Truth was the first album for them to get number one. It was nominated for a Mercury that year. Um, obviously, the title comes from a, a quote from uh, an Iron Bevan, so we talked about yeah. their sort of like Welsh identity there. It was probably also the height of my sort of Manix fandom. It's probably waned slightly in the years since. Um, I didn't go to the gig. Um, Neil can be forgiven. Um, he was only, oh, I was about- only 13. Yeah. I'll lay you off. But you went, mate. Um, what, what was yeah. it like? So I can't remember most of it, but I think I joined the rest of it. I think there was one defining, unifying, common thread amongst everybody Let who was guess. Welsh that Let night. Have a, have a guess, Neil. On the night when it's one of the greatest nights in Welsh culture, the, one of the greatest lineups in Welsh culture, everyone's thinking again, getting pissed, yeah? Absolutely battered. <laughs> I mean, I don't really drink, but I actually made a conscious, ironically, conscious decision as I was basically unconscious later to because um, I think it was made to be something so huge yeah. everything surrounding you know put the gig to one side for a minute but just think about this like I say this whole paranoia I mean you know if you suffered with anxiety <laughs> in 1999 you would be an absolute bloody emotional yeah. wreck because it really was you know apart from a, a Mayan prophecy I think it was you know this could signal the end of the world as we know it and uh, we feel fine to coin REM but um, I went to a house party beforehand and there were just crates of beer everywhere uh, my friend uh, Richard hello Richard if you're listening he uh, did a very fine job of getting the booze in for everybody who was there we were all going to the gig uh, he lived less than half a mile I guess from the stadium so we all ambled up Tudor Street from Canton uh, Leckwith area and we got there as the furries were starting in their set I think I mean being a music fan I, I was keen to get there before then but obviously there was a lot of drinking to be done so I, I probably feel a little bit for the bands on the undercard if you like who possibly uh, didn't have the fullest of audiences save the uh, Mannix uh, aficionados when we spoke to uh, Patrick uh, who was obviously up first he you know, we talked about what was it daunting, you know, talk to those that many people. And he said, well, it was only like half full, only 30,000. Yeah. <laughs> that's but enough. Still, yeah. that's, that's enough. incredible, isn't it? And I mean, you know, it was a massive deal in Mannix world, let's not forget. I mean, you, you boys put an appeal out on Twitter and you were absolutely inundated. And what struck me m- most was the lengths that people went to to get to that gig and the lengths they went to to just stay out all night at the end of the gig, sleeping at the station 
Wigan or travelling over two days to get down to Cardiff. You know, it was the biggest gig I guess the Mannix had played at that point. Oh, God. Um, by far. So, you know, let's put Wales to one side for a minute. If you're a Mannix fan from anywhere, I guess, you know, that is achievable to travel to and from, then you were going to try and get there on Millennium Eve. Uh, obviously, the gig was sold out, which told its own story. So, you know, you say that Patrick went on stage and there was 30,000 people there. I'm sure there were 30,000 people probably hanging off his every word yeah. because they were the real hardcore fans, I guess. What do you think, though, in terms of, like, I know Nicky Wire has said stuff like, if you tolerate this, maybe wouldn't resonate quite the same in terms of like people aren't, you know, the, the wider public maybe aren't so politically engaged, but then it is a very political time. So it's, there is that dichotomy of people who want both. What, what, what do you think of it in this day and age? Would it resonate the same? Yeah, I think it would. I think we're living through, you know, tremendously uh, political times. In fact, it reminds me of growing up in the 80s under Thatcher. It seems the same, you know, there's the same level of protest. It's, uh, you know, a few years ago, people were worried that music wouldn't be a driving force for political protest and where were the musicians that were coming out and saying anything to anybody and that seems to have changed to me seems like we're in a new dawn of political protest so you know <laughs> the Malik's coming out being the firebrands they were would have sat perfectly at home in these times certainly yeah. were you surprised that they didn't celebrate the the 20th anniversary and having a gig in this in the stadium like in a couple of days time um Probably because they're still recovering from putting on that gig, I guess. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm the same age as them. Obviously, the energy and the stamina and the enthusiasm that you would need to stage such a thing now um, would probably be too much for them and tip them over the edge. But also... I think you probably should never go back. Yeah. And it's never going to be the same. And it wouldn't be as good. And literally, you'll probably have people like me getting too drunk <laughs> and spending a week recovering instead of two <laughs> days from the hangover. But, and nobody really needs to see yeah, that. Yeah, but, but in fairness to the band, I think they've shown remarkable energy in recent years in terms of Holy Bible, Whole Tour. That's a you know, tremendously, like onerous oh, um, tour to undertake, you know, with the amount of lyrics and the solos. And that. We saw uh, Kieran Evans's um, film recently and it just, yeah. uh, Be Pure, Be P Vigilant, Behave, and it just really hit home how sort of onerous that album is. Plus, this week was the anniversary of the O2 gig where they played all 38, I think, singles at the time, which is yeah, you know, amazing true. sort of... Uh, so they've always taken on a challenge, So I yeah, guess, you yeah. Know. And I, I, know, I know James has always said, like, you know, he's felt like a, a sportsman in terms of, like, approaching these gigs you know it's yeah. like the adrenaline pumping in the tunnel sort of equivalent of really I think you have to look at what they've done in the past few years you know with the anniversary tours of uh, Holy Bible and I remember interviewing James around about the time when they were planning it and he you know he'd reveal what they were doing and you know he, he, he only half joked that it would be akin to running up and down Snowdonia uh, up, up and down Snowdon learning the lyrics um you know, digesting all Richie's incredible lyrics. And, and that's just one half of the, the show that they performed. So let, let's give them their dues. Obviously, playing Cardiff Castle in the summer, with the This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours tour, was a, a big undertaking as well. And, you know, it looks like they're working on new material. So, you know, they're one of those bands, whilst others have disappeared into the middle distance or, or split up, you know, and 
you know, while their contemporaries have faded into the shadows, you know, haunting the margins of the heritage circuit, they're still playing <laughs> stadium shows, yeah. which, you know, I can't think of many bands from that period when they emerged, if at all, that no. that have, you know. I mean, you know, Stereophonics, of course, have, have continued to do so, but not many others. They're all playing Shine On Weekenders at Butlins, aren't they, essentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose so, yeah. And uh, £30 a ticket as well, bargain. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Think you'd be, don't think you'd be paying thirty pound uh, this year. I, well, I don't know what I would. Yeah, how much would you have to pay now? To how much was a loaf of bread in ninety nine? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, I can't. I can't do. We have to go on that calculator. Yeah, I, 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 know, I know they had a lot of good uh, press at the time. You know what sort of good socialists they were in terms of like the, the the sheer value of what people were charging for clubs at the time. Yeah, yeah. There was a bit uh, deleted from the DVD where um, Nicky has a bit of a rant about Fatboy Slim. Can you remember this? Yeah, I do vaguely remember it. And it was and like, you know, why the fuck would you go over and listen to a guy just playing records to three people in the ice <laughs> rink when you can be you with yeah, us? Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's be honest, Mr. Wire was never short of a, an opinion or two at that particular time he, anyway. He, he, was, he, you know? he was on fire. I mean, he looked brilliant. He came out on stage resplendent in a, in a, a white um, dressing gown and then he had this culture slut um, dress on that um, was made by a fan who's got in touch with us he was on fire at that time like he went out to um tea in the park and also i think v99 and he was just taking down everyone beta band fucking drunken assholes <laughs> um stereophonics he had a go at because they uh, tried to wreck their instruments the night before this is how you fucking do it yeah and also billy bragg who he was like well just said yeah. everything about him didn't he yeah well, I mean, it, explosive it's explosive sets. Uh, to, to me, you know, I always, if you're a journalist, you love that, don't you? Oh, God. You know, yeah, you, yeah. You, you love it. It's what you want your bands to be. You know, God, I wish there were more bands nowadays that had that same sense of. Um, Something to say. Uh, yeah, don't say anything. You yeah. know, they're also media trained. Uh, it's great to have a, have a band who is so, you know, off the cuff and happy to dismantle va- various artists. I mean, now what you have nowadays is bands just thanking every venue they yes. play and everybody, you know, I think. Bands just thank everybody too much. Just so grateful for everything. Just be a little bit, you know, have a snarl, have a swagger. I mean, exactly. in, the, in this, this social media age now, where maybe everyone gets offended on Twitter, and you can't imagine a band like the Manics who were like just saying that outrageously hilarious stuff, like you know, yeah. Richie's uh, quote: um, "We'll always hate slow dive more than Adolf Hitler." Yeah, I mean, I mean you can't help but laugh at that, you know. It's, it, yeah. it's obviously meant to, to be outrageous. Yeah, of course. And that's why I think they were such a polarising force when they first emerged. There were those that took them seriously and loved them for just what you've talked about. And others who just thought this is hollow rock and roll pantomime. And, you know, of course, Richie's famous carving four reel into his arm as um, a statement of intent and proof that they um, talk to talk and walk the walk, you know. But for somebody like me as a journalist back then, you know, I've talked about in the, the podcast that we did, the first one about meeting them. Fantastic. You know, it's probably the, the story I talk about most with anybody who asked me about my career, you know, meeting them. It was brilliant. I mean, God, I didn't understand half of what they were going on about because they were quoting every philosopher and author and playwright. And But God, it was great fun. And an amazing trajectory as well. Only 10 years previously in 1989, no, they played the square. Um, you know, Two just people. Around the Two people, the manager and uh, a Richie's sister. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. You know, a gig I would wish to God I could have been at, but yeah. 
you know, I wasn't aware of them at that, at that point. But yeah, I mean, in the space of 10 years from, you know, the square club was, what, 200 yards away? Well, it was across the road, wasn't it, from the Millennium Stadium. So to see how they'd risen, and, you know, let's not forget that they aspired to be the biggest band in the world. You know, they wanted to play the biggest stages. They aspired to the rock and roll iconography, and, you know, they planned their ascent, and, and they made it, and, you know, all power to them for that. What a story. I mean, uh, we were talking in... Um the 2019 roundup about I mean I, I was waxing lyrical about Pretty Vicious being so um, ambitious which yeah. they were but with the Manics it was a, a whole huge different level of ambition in terms of like we're going to outsell um, Guns N' Roses play seven eight nights at Wembley Stadium set ourselves on fire on top of the pops and then like <laughs> yeah. go out in a yeah. blaze of glory it just yeah. You just do not hear that from bands. I think you'll never... Well, you can't can't say never, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to ever have a band that were that fully formed, that had the songs, that had the look, that had the ambition. The belief, yeah. The belief, the driving force, but the wildly captivating and intoxicating eloquence and intelligence, which I've never seen in any other band or any other band member like Richie Edwards, for instance, ever. You know, they were and he was a complete one off. And the mystery that has now attached itself to the band for almost 25 years, you know, which it will be in February, is something that has added to the unique mystique surrounding the band. So when you put all that together, this is a unique story that I can't imagine will ever be equaled. And the musical talent as well, I think that goes under the radar as well. We talk about the look, we talk about what they say, we talk about the slogans, we talk about For Real Richie, the lyrics, but whenever I go to see them play, I'm just astounded by the musicianship of of James. Oh, yeah. yeah. Playing, you know, lead guitar under vocals. I, you know, I can barely play, I, you know, I, I, rhythm I, guitar and sing at the same I, time. I've, t- I've taken my father to quite a few Maddox gigs. Yeah. He loves it. And yeah. this is not doing a disservice to Nicky, who's so charismatic and Sean's such a good musician. But he always says, James is the show. He's incredible. Like his voice and his command of the guitar, just captivating. You can't take your eyes off him. I think I remember um, Nicky saying that, I think it was when they were in Oakdale Comprehensive, when they were at school together and... They were just forming the band, had the idea for the band, and they were getting going. And I think, and I could be wrong, and Manic fans forgive me if I have got this wrong, that uh, James got Appetite for Destruction, Guns Roses. Within a week, apparently. Took it home, yeah, within a week. He was playing all the riffs, all the licks. Bonk- I, I, I've been playing um, the guitar phenomenal. for about... 15 years <laughs> so what, what, and I've never touched Appetite for Destruction because yeah. it's beyond me but what you have is two strands of preternatural talent coexisting together which is an absolute rarity you've got this the eloquence intelligent the incredible songwriting skills of um, Wire and Edwards and you've got the insane musicianship of James and James Sean. Bradfield and then you've got Sean who's a uh, brilliant trumpet player yeah yeah, and also like writes Maddox. the music with James a sort of like accomplished musician in his own right the, the most underrated member of the band I think like 
Patrick, Nikki's brother, you know, who introduced them to all of the the writers and and people that they reference a lot, sort of goes unnoticed. Uh, you know, maybe in a few interviews, uh, you know, there was a Radio Four documentary about them. A oh, few the years master ago. tapes, yeah, master that was brilliant, tapes. Yeah, and they, you know, they all credit, uh, you know, going over to the park well, and listening well, well, to Well, yeah, f- f- funnily enough, um, I was reading. I've been, been researching uh, the Manics a lot this week, and uh, I read the Enemy Originals, a fantastic compilation of all their articles from about fifteen years. Ago and James says the best new artist he'd heard, new in inverted commas, was Patrick Jones. And that was in 1999 when the Mannix had sweeped the boards at the Enemy Awards with four awards. They had won two awards at the Brits. Just brilliant to hear that they were still so grounded and, you know, thanking people so close to them. Yeah, and we talk about it in the episode with Patrick. You know, 1999, he released the play Everything Must Go. People think he's jumping on the bandwagon of his brother's, you know, fame. And, you know, he was the one who came up with a name for the album before it was well, released. He, well, yeah, if you look uh, through a lot, of uh, the Manic's career, Patrick's been so influential throughout Under Neon Loneliness. You know, that's from a Patrick Jones um, poem, you know, Motorcycle Emptiness. He followed him to Swansea University. Yeah, yeah. Um, and hugely influential. I know in that Master Tapes episode that um, James would say they would go over the park and they would just listen to him, like, reading, like, Kerouac and, like, you know, his poetry and that, and they were just absolutely in awe of him, you know. Um, yeah. what, what I find with the Manic's is not only did they turn me on to so much literature, like, you know, I've turned on to Orwell and I've, you know, checked out Kierkegaard and Sylvia Plath, but they were absolute sponges for any sort of cultural references, you know, and that yeah. is just such a bygone sort of thing, surely, isn't it? Yeah, because you can't really think of anybody who possesses the same kind of cultural traits as them coming through. I mean, I could Libertines. be doing... What's that? Libertines. Oh, no, no, nowhere near, surely. I think, you know, they had no? the, the rock and roll, didn't they? They had the... Um, they got a lot of uh, sort of uh, literature references. I guess so. It's not the um, breadth, though, is it? The, the Manics had everything. Not to the everything. same intensity, I guess. You know, I remember going to Faster Studios, you know, the Manic Studio, and they famously had a, um, a wall of, <laughs> of the toilet block, <laughs> funnily enough, and it was full of pictures of artists and musicians and authors and painters and great cultural icons and in fact they, they said they played a game with any visitor that if they could um, get 90 of the people who were on the wall then they, they'd win a prize um, but it was virtually impossible. Is that the one on the door? That's yeah, right. yeah, they're taking yeah. the door Black with them to, the, uh, the door. to their with new them. studio. That's right. <laughs> I, I yeah. mean, I, I, I was a researcher. It, it was a big sort of inspiration for the podcast, really. Um, I was speaking to Jamie two, three months ago, and I was tentatively researching a Mannix book, as I have been for the last sort of, couple of years, and kind of doing sort of an encyclopedia, an absolute anorak's guide to the Mannix. It, it kind of like would only relate to Sado's like me. <laughs> But it was such a daunting project because the sheer breadth of, like, cultural references and the stories behind the song. And, like, you could literally, in some songs, go line by line and think, yeah, there's a story to this, there's a story to this, there's a story to this. And I've become terrified of the project in the end. I guess. You could probably do a book based on their set list signatures, the quotes at the bottom of each set list, given the hundreds of gigs they played. You know, there's probably a, a book in that. I mean, yeah, I mean, th- th- this this book could be, like, as long as the Old and New Testament combined. And yeah. it would literally just be us who were listening tonight and uh, us in the room who would be interested in that. But going to a publisher and saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, I want to publish, a, you know, a thousand piece, a, a thousand page book yeah. on the Mannix. Yeah. Probably be laughed at. Well, maybe, I don't, I don't know, know, but who knows? I but, think um, you might find a publisher for it. 
So talking of setlist, um, we're watching the DVD in the background at the minute and uh, we've got the setlist in front of us. Let's go through what, what they played on the night. So they started with You Stole a Son from My Heart, um, a great sing-along crowd pleaser to start with, but also a little bit Marmite against the hardcore fans yeah, like yourself, Neil. Well, no, 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 I, I love it, in fact. Um, but I know a lot of people are a little bit, maybe it's a little bit populist and um, it's a little bit too of a beery sing-along, you know, with the factions of the Mannix fans. But I, I, think it's a, I think it's a real crowd piece. I think it's great. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, exactly. I think the set list is, you know, gets off to a great start and then just kicks on. And uh, do you know what? I think something I was going to say was when you saw the band ahead of the gig, there was a general nervousness there. Um, I think, you know, obviously they realised the enormity of the gig, as I said earlier. But also, you know, to ease themselves into the gig, they needed to feel comfortable and they needed to take the crowd along on the ride with them. You know, be- before the gig, um, it was telling... I've, I've done a little bit of research, could have written a piece for the Western Mail for New Year's Eve about the gig. And they did a press conference on the day of the show and Nicky was joking uh, with the assembled press pack about there was a limit put on the attendance because there were fears over the fact that it was the first live music show they'd ever staged so yeah they never they weren't quite sure how the stadium was going to react was it gonna be, yeah th- th- so there was a lot of concerns about the ripple effect apparently yeah, with the people stamping right. and that sort of thing I, I so see. they added steel girders extra steel girders to the stadium because you know they, they had that general sense of um, worry and awareness I seem it. to remember didn't in the very very early days of the uh, Millennium Stadium a piece of the roof fall down in a rugby game yeah it was the opening opening ceremony of the uh, the rugby world cup yeah so you can see this sort of nervousness you could understand really. yeah, yeah. yeah and I think that translated itself to the band to some extent um I mean, Nicky on the day was joking, all this jumping around might knock the stadium down, try and keep calm. He was joking with the, with the assorted journalists. And, but, but James, you know, who always seems the most steely and confident of individuals, pro, you know, professed to a, a hint of nerves and, and his nerves were about forgetting the words. And I think, you know, you think of all the pressure and stress that he had to deal with. So maybe the set list was, you know, something of his cho- choosing to ease the band into the evening. You know, you stole the sun faster, everything must go, tsunami, masses against the clusters. You know, that, that's a really foot on the pedal, nought to 60 in five minutes set of songs to get the crowd going and to probably calm his nerves and ease him into the show as well. I was watching um, the uh, DVD last night and one thing that struck me um, quite strangely really is that the, the Mannix are usually such engaging interviewees and I'm not saying they weren't on the extras of the DVD, but I tend to think you could sense their nerves in terms of like James is always like sort of quite twitchy and um, yeah. dealing with his face a lot. Nicky's very sort of a little bit monotone looking into the middle distance on the interviews. And he says at one point, you know, we, we've been uh, re- rehearsing in Newport Centre, which is was a rehearsal studio. Um, yeah. Which, you know, they, they were playing that on the Everything Must Go Tour only two years ago. Yeah. And they felt like they'd made it, which is only 1,500, 2,000 yeah. capacity. That's it. All of a sudden now, they're playing to 57,000 people at the Millennium Stadium. Yeah. And I, I, I do tend to think, like, that, that you can sense their nerves in the interviews. Do you, do, what, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that uh, Newport Centre scene is pretty striking. Um, and I, I felt the same, you know, you could... Nick had his sunglasses on, you know, James did genuinely seem 
quite nervous but you know come on it's understandable isn't oh, it God, yeah, yeah. No, no, anybody not, um, would, would know, be the same I, I, I guess them for but that listen you know I think if they didn't have nerves uh, it would have been odd yeah. it would have been strange and you know I'm sure we all know having a bit of nerves is, is helpful sometimes to focus your mind and um, keep, keep yourself set on the task in front of you in that interview James says you know in six months time there'll be some glorious summer gigs but all, all the you know, issues will be ironed out. We're the Manic Street guinea pigs for this. This is the first ever gig. What was it like being there in terms of the sound and the production and that sort of thing? Well, I, I was nearer the... I was in the middle tier, um, nearer the front half of the stadium, I guess. And, you know, <laughs> what, what you have to say is that... Um, one of one one of the people who commented on your Twitter was um, uh, Simon Price, obviously one of uh, Wales and the world's greatest music journalist, who um, said he preloaded a hip flask, <laughs> which made me laugh. No, that was and, one of the um, best tweets we had. That yeah, was brilliant. And um, I, I got to be honest, I was pretty preloaded as well <laughs> when I was there. So for me to comment on the intricacies or otherwise and the technical superiority or otherwise of the sound, you're probably asking the wrong person. We had a comment from uh, Cloydo in the, the novelist. Um, we probably can't repeat on here, but um, yeah, he didn't remember much about the gig either. Well, um, you know, you're having a good time if you can't remember a lot of it. Well, but yeah, it, it, um, was, it was a great sense of community. It was a great sense of kinship and camaraderie. You know, I remember I probably didn't let go of my girlfriend and everybody else who was there at the time. You know, Claire, who's my wife now, we, you know, we had a wonderful, wonderful night. And, um, God, you couldn't get a cab at the end of the show, though. That was the only thing that, and I walked, we, we walked six and a half miles back to the east of Cardiff and to my parents' house. So we were fully sober by the time we got back home. Go, going back to you were saying about uh, Simon Price, um, I was uh, reading through his book last night, everything. Yeah. To me, like, I know this may sound a bit sycophantic with, you know, maybe Simon listening, but... One of the great rock biographies. Yeah, the definitive take. Brilliant, the band, absolutely brilliant. I'd love him to write a follow-up for the last 20 years. But uh, anyway, he was saying that um, this is one of the most drunkest nights I've ever had. And I've been, uh, I, I went to the um, after show. I ended up in James uh, Dean Bradfield's hotel room. And I was so drunk, I had to like just have a sleep underneath the coffee table. <laughs> exactly. Well, fair play. That's a sign of a good night. That's out of a me. performance in there. That's great, yeah. Very much so. And, you know, there were so many other people who were in uh, the same boat. I, you know, it wasn't being judged on the musicianship. wasn't being judged on the, on the uh, sound. It wasn't even being judged on the, you know, off-remarked cues at the bar. Because, frankly... I didn't care about that, you know. I mean, you've got to remember that these are teething issues. It's the first time they ever, the stadium had ever held an event such as that. So until you do, you, you can't really tell what's going to happen and what you need. Well, so, yeah, yeah. you know, I think people who, who maybe would labour over that are probably thinking about the wrong it, things. Yeah, it, it, it does frustrate me a little um, hearing the amount of like, oh, you know, the bar cues were shit. And it's like, yeah, well, what was the gig like, you know? Um, exactly. And in terms of like, not only is it a gig on New Year's Eve, it's a gig on a Millennium Eve. Yes, and I think all the staff had to pay, be paid like triple pay and yes. stuff like that. Uh, and uh, the Manics had to sell out every ticket at thirty pounds. Yeah, just to sort of break even, really, which yeah. is a tremendous yeah. gesture from the band themselves. Yeah, I've done the inflation calculator, by the way, <laughs> and uh, 
30 pounds in 2018 which is the closest i can get 53 quid still a bargain oh no yeah to see to, that, for the inflation calculator to see that line up though you would pay so well it just saves i'd pay that yeah 30 pound you would pay it i can't even remember what i was doing that night like must have had a good time probably bloody jules holland was that <laughs> no it's my biggest regret as a manix fan not going mate you're 13 you're fine yeah but are we gonna get in <laughs> my, my parents, I suppose. But I, I, I you know, I, I'm unashamedly an absolutely obsessive, nerdy Manix fan. A stato, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen the Manix on every... I, I saw them the first time two years later. Uh, no, three years later. Um, Friday the Day Tour. Yeah. I've seen them on every tour since. I've seen them about 25, 30 times now. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's my biggest regret as a Manix fan not seeing. You can't it regret that, mate. Honestly, I mean, I, I, Listen, I, I, I told you before we started recording that I walked into Virgin Records on Duke Street in Cardiff in 1980. I was 11 years old, and I tried to purchase a ticket for the Jam at Sapphire Gardens, much to the amusement, merriment, and scorn of the uh, sales assistants in Virgin Records who laughed me out of the shop. But so, you know, we've my, all been there. My overriding memory of this night was my brother, Mike, who uh, Jamie knows, yeah. had been working House of Fraser Howells okay. and, uh, all day and uh, he got home from his uh, shift and my oldest brother was like, oh, you're on catch-up, you're on catch-up because you've been drinking all day. So my brother drank a whole bottle of Jack Daniels. Pretty, <laughs> pretty much neat. <laughs> and was just... It was a miracle how he didn't get his stomach pumped. And, and that was how we spent our <laughs> millennium night, just pretty much looking after him. Yes, another interesting bit of trivia is um, obviously Masses Against the Classes, one of the uh, the newer tracks on, on the set list, which um, was the first new number one of, of the millennium. And a quote from Nicky, to cut from the DVD, um, is about sort of getting rid of the, the Christmas number one, which was Westlife, uh, Flying Without Wings. Been there for four weeks, yeah. I'm sure we all bought that. And yeah, <laughs> Nicky sort of uh, had a plea to, to get the fuckers off the top. What a song. You know, what, anybody will be asked the question, what was the first number one of the new millennium? And everybody will be thinking the X Factory tie, yeah. the Westlife, the Boys Owns, you know, those, those rubbish sort of minor key awful indulgent songs and um it was this you know incendiary call to arms that is the masses against the classes and god we could do with that being re-released in 2020 absolutely yeah you know human flag on the front front cover not on an album deleted on the day of purchase as well that's right amazing marketing uh trick really well it was a master stroke whatever it was and it worked perfectly and um and that spoke volumes about the band essentially um and uh, just like going back to what i was saying earlier really amazing that a song like that has got to number one you know like the title is inspired by um the old british prime minister um William Gladstone, all over the world, I'll back the masses against the classes. It starts with a Noam Chomsky uh, quotation um, and finishes with James Howlin, an Albert Camus quote. That's just, I just don't get that, do you? you know, well, like, uh, it's what we were talking about, wasn't it? About the uniqueness, yeah. um, the idiosyncrasies of this band. Uh, sums them up perfectly in that song. And then we sort of move on to the, to La Tristesse and then um, the first cover of the night, which was uh, rock and roll music. Yeah, and that was phenomenal. I mean, I actually do remember that vividly, to be honest with you. Probably because I was dancing furiously and trying not to break any part of my body or uh, pull a hernia. 
in any place. Um, I do remember everybody just dancing wildly to that. And it's, it's a fantastic version, you've got to say, think, on yeah. its respective merits. I mean, James really just does pommel into that song. Moving on to uh, A Walk in Abortion from uh, The Holy Bible, not the most accessible track to, to the masses. Um, and Nicky said during the song that um, the bar probably sold... Uh, eight million pints doing that when he probably didn't know what was going on with the, the lack of drink uh, um, we spoke to uh, John Rostron uh, in, in an earlier podcast and he was saying that he bumped into uh, Hugh Stevens who uh, was going to the Super Free Animals hospitality box so he was okay for drink and uh, yeah. we, had a, we, had a, we had a good tweet talking about hospitality boxes Neil this is uh, was sent to us by Tim Bennett uh, on Facebook it's a brilliant story actually really funny and uh, it really took me straight back to 1999 when I, when I read it um, he said, we were lucky to have been given a guest pass for the gig by Sean Moore. Um, with Fab Knight right, uh, in- included a journey from Blackwood on one of the friends and family coaches to the stadium with a police escort no queues for the uh, for beers which was unheard of because uh, they had wristbands for the hospitality one funny story was when the actor who played the Welsh character in EastEnders Hugh can you remember him? I yeah. do yeah Ian, Ian Beale. Beale you remember him? <laughs> the, the logger so yeah he, he was there and uh, he was trying to get into the hospitality bar giving it all you know who I am I'm Hugh from EastEnders and uh, yeah, the bouncer was just having, the dorm was having none of it. Um, we, of course, uh, this is Tim saying it now, we, of course, could not resist start, um, you know, starting to wave at him and, uh, you know, jiggling our pints in his direction. <laughs> to which he said, who the fuck are they? To the doorman. The doorman replied, I have no idea, but they've got the proper wristbands and that's why they're in the bar they're allowed in. Exactly. And, yeah, that was uh, Hugh from EastEnders back in his box. And that's what... Uh by security are so good at their jobs yeah we've had some great messages sent in uh, we've had um, you know talking of uh, Hugh Stevens he said he remembers buying his first ever mobile phone the day of the Manic Millennium wow um, and he said he felt so lucky looking back that he was watching the Manic so when a new Millennium arrived it was a massive special one off event Beth and Elvin as well also give us a, a quote she said that Manic Millennium was an incredible day and night the anticipation the magnitude of the gig the all day lineup. it was New Year's Eve it was Millennium Bug it was Manics a band that turned me punk in the sixth form this was everything life peak Friends, families, whales en masse, decamped and ready for a night to remember. The rest is now a bit blurry, apart from the long walk home. And I think uh, that's probably the same for most people, a bit of a blurry end to the evening. And, uh... Do you know what? I think she's hit the nail on the head there. You know, it was a crystallisation of something happening in Wales, you know, beyond the steel girders of the stadium and beyond Cardiff, you know. It, it, it was the rubber stamp of a decade, putting the perfect seal, the perfect end to what had been an incredible 10 years for the country. So another cover that evening that the Mannix performed was Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, famously the anthem for the... the, the the road to uh, to the USA in 94 where unfortunately oh, as per God, every single awful. campaign that pre-2016 we we, uh, we didn't make it I have to say it was a particularly teary-eyed redemptive moment for me as a long-suffering Wales football fan who had stood actually where I was sat in the stadium would probably be not a million miles away from where I was sat in the arms park it was on the right side of the ground for a start off when um Obviously, we suffered heartache with a boding penalty and everything else, the tragedy that surrounded that particular game. So, you know, it was nice actually six years later to uh, five, six years later to experience some kind of redemptive joy <laughs> yeah. than it wouldn't have made 2016 as sweet yeah. and as beautiful. They followed up that 
sort of feel-good, real party anthem, Can't Take My Eyes Off You, with small black flowers that grow in the sky. Um, beautifully bleak, really, but such a manic thing to do, like, to cover that sort of high to... Yeah, it's a contrast, isn't yeah, it, of God, styles, yeah, yeah. and um, a, l- a lovely tribute to Richie, I guess, and, um, you know, his words, and a parting shot from... Yeah, preceded by James's words, my coolest vote for the last decade, Richie Edwards, yeah. There we go, uh, summed it up perfectly. But it's a gorgeous, gorgeous song, isn't it? Is it is brilliant, yeah, the harp yeah. is gorgeous on it, absolutely gorgeous, yeah. And, uh, you know, in a way... Uh, Probably everybody needed a rest after the lung-busting fervour of Can't Take My Eyes Off You. And, 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 well. and also, it's a complete sort of, um, to the end then, it's all the hits. You know, I know they've got Elvis Impersonator in there, but it's all the sort of feel-good songs. It's, you've got Australia in there, Stay Beautiful, uh, If You Tolerate This, you know, Time For Life. Um, yeah. So, yeah, amazing. You know, I, I know it's only eight songs after the millennium, but... An unexpected to everybody except the band and the management and the people working on the show. Uh, on-screen message from former Miners leader Arthur Scargill. Yeah. You mentioned uh, having a bit of a breather after the uh, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, Small Black Flowers, uh, Double Edder. And um, Nicky Wire, you know, with his uh, regular costume changes that evening, yes. resplendent in a sparkly cape and tie during Elvis Impertinator, just lie down on the stage, you know, probably feeling the effects of the midnight champagne. I would guess the adrenaline was so huge, the rush that you're going to hit a crash at some time. But, you know, let, let, let us pay tribute to The Wire and his fantastic, stunning, wonderful legs. Um, I'm so jealous. Because, you know, I, I am a man of a heterosexual flavour, but <laughs> his, his, you uh, can appreciate his stunning calves and yeah. um, his silky... Silky thighs and his uh, resplendent knees. You, you went to the Liberty Stadium gig, uh, 2016, yeah. Yes. When it when he he was in skin tight, silvery, glittery trousers, and I seem to remember. I think it was just before um, Together Stronger. There was a storm. Can you remember? Yes. Amazing spectacle. I was in the seats with my missus, and um, the, all the steam was coming off the people, and it was great to see like the whole stadium like from the seats. And yeah, these trousers were so tight. He was he was trying in vain to get these trousers off, and he had this whale's skirt underneath. <laughs> That's right. And yeah. he could not kick them off. <laughs> and everyone was just wolf whistling, and it was absolutely it was one of the best moments of the night. Hilarious. It was brilliant. As we mentioned earlier, "Design for Life," the last uh, song of the set, broadcast globally to two billion people. James Dean Bradfield's guitar strap broke or fell off just before the solo um, just before that violin bit when he's like yeah Yeah, brilliant but but didn't he style it out well (laughs) yeah very much mate I don't know whether he would say that. I don't know. Uh, well, I think you, you know, maybe uh, on artistic merit, he probably wouldn't have scored that highly. But in terms of interpretative dance, <laughs> I would have definitely given him a nine, possibly a ten. He was seem, he seemed <laughs> remarkably composed. Of all the times that could happen, you know, in arguably the biggest gig of their career at the yeah. biggest time, and that's happened. Still smiling and that, and yeah, he, he breaks into this bit of shadow boxing. And then an Axel Rose dance. I think he's got through everything. It's probably a bit of relief and there's probably a bit of joy. I think and, so, yeah. Um, that release, isn't it? The relief must have been huge that he realised, Christ, we did it. And it was all combined in that little moment. 
which was a lovely little vignette, I think. Two billion people. You can't imagine the sort of uh, the worry, the anxiety that you mentioned earlier that would have gone over you sort of yeah. thinking about that um, and then for that to happen. But yes. as you said, to style it out, absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, the countdown's quite funny on the on the film, you know, on yeah. the DVD. Well, they when, when you see the, there's a girl in, down in the pit, isn't she, with the one minute sign and then the 30 second sign. I think he comes in a bit too early with the 10 seconds, so he's got a sort of, you know, delay it a little bit as well. Yeah, probably safe, better safe than sorry, I guess, rather than going late. They, yeah, because you can see Martin Hall there, the Manic's manager, um, off off camera going, come on, like 10 seconds, you know, concentrate, you know, and you can see Nicky Wire as well saying to James, come on, like, you know, look, exactly. look at the sign. You know, you think of all the pressure that they had on that gig, and then you added that into it as well, a global link-up. I mean, God, you know, you just think of everything that had gone into that particular moment as well, added to the mix. It's insane, really. No wonder everybody in the camp got wildly drunk after it and were crawling under tables and just a sheer sense of relief, isn't it? Well, saying beforehand, Cardiff, the most beautiful place in the world tonight at least. That's a backhanded <laughs> compliment, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's beautiful. I, lo- I love it. <laughs> Exactly. It, it says it, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Definitely, definitely. No, it was uh, an amazing moment, an amazing night, and you know whether people could get a bloody pint or not. Let's just concentrate on what was unfolding on stage, and I think that's the abiding memory that everybody should take yeah, away absolutely. from that show. The other thing he said before Design for Life was that it was a thank you for giving them the best night of their lives. Yeah, it, it must have been. You know, for a band that have had so many highs and and many lows as well let's not forget yeah um to come up with something like that and 20 years on you know remember they've been together longer after the gig than they had been before yeah true um to carry on and continue to push themselves to still achieve to still be creative after all this time that takes a very special band to be able to do that frankly Thank you so much, Dave. Again, mate, third time on the podcast. And uh, thank you so much for uh, reliving or trying to relive 1999. Uh, Brilliant Um, indulgence, wasn't it? Yeah. God bless old people. Keep on keeping on the old people. I love this, guys. It was great. Thank you.